Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to another episode of Forgotten Ummah, brought to you in association with the Reorient Journal, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Uh, on the subject of Forgotten or Lost, I've actually been re-watching um, the TV show Lost. It's always interesting to see um, TV shows that were made at the relative beginning of the War on Terror and how they actually depict Muslims and Islamdom. Um, maybe this is something we could actually cover in a future episode, uh, inshallah. Uh, on a, on another note, I must say that um, obviously our du'as are with the people of Turkey and Syria um, during this difficult time. I pray that Allah protects the people there and gives them ease. Um, inshallah, Ramadan is very close by and we pray that we all have the opportunity to make the most um, out of that blessed month. Uh, I'm also delighted to announce uh, that the second International Critical Muslim Studies Conference will take place at the University of Leeds, 16th to 18th of June of this year. The submission window for abstracts is now open and closes on the 31st of March. For more information, please visit www.criticalmuslimstudies.co.uk. So, today's episode is the start of Season 9, and it features Salman Saeed and Harun Bashir as your hosts, and Fatima Regina as our guest speaker. The episode is on Muslim communities in Argentina and Chile. Let's listen in. Okay, so Fatima, do you want to maybe just introduce yourself and tell our li- listeners a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, so my name is Dr. Fatima Regina. I'm currently based at the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre, where I am looking at Somali-Bengali relations in Tar Hamlets. Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've invited you to talk about this series that we have as a Forgotten Ummah, which kind of looks at Muslim communities where people don't expect to find Muslim communities. And a lot of that places tend to be, for example, the Western Hemisphere, um, you know, and other parts of the world where people just don't think there's a Muslim community there. So maybe what we'd like to do is you've talked about some of your research that you've done about Muslims in, in Argentina and Chile. And I just thought, firstly, what, 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 how did you find them? Okay. And tell us a story about how you found them, and then we can take from sure. there. Sure. Um, okay, so to understand my relationship with Argentina, you have to understand my relationship and love for the Spanish language. Um, so I, my family, we moved to Britain in 2001. Um, it was actually uh, uh, because of 9-11 my parents made the decision for us to move uh, so I grew up in Germany so we moved to uh, the UK to Luton uh, and my grandparents have been there since the 60s uh, in Luton so we moved there and then um, my two main languages were German and Bangla and um, English wasn't really a language uh, uh, I grew up with it of course it's, you know, it's the colonial language that many South Asians carry with them everywhere but it wasn't a language I was necessarily fluent in. Uh, I didn't speak it particularly well. So anyway, so we came. I started school in year nine. And I just uh, fell in love with Spanish. I was put into a Spanish class. Um, and uh, I fell in love with it. And then at the end of year nine, when you select your choices, if you remember your days in year nine. Um, so yes, yeah, so I selected Spanish as one of them. And I did Spanish GCSE. I did really well in it. Then I did Spanish A-level. Uh, again, I did uh, pretty well in it. And then uh, I did it for my undergrad. I did German and Spanish for my um, undergraduate degree at Royal Holloway. Um, and again, I loved everything we studied. Uh, we did modules from uh, looking at um, arts and culture of Mexico. We looked at stuff around Cuba. Uh, we looked at uh, Chile quite a lot because of the political history of Chile. 
um, so yeah, so we just, we just, uh, you know, I, I was just uh, very much, uh, you know, in love with the Spanish language. Um, and up until then, though, I was mostly familiar with a sort of Spain-Spanish way of uh, expressing things. So we then have to, in our second year of our uni, apply for our third year of what we want to do, which country we want to go to. So I did six months in Germany uh, with the British Council, where I taught uh, English in a second you know, it's like a secondary school uh, in Germany. And for Spanish, actually, it was a bit of a battle. So initially, I wanted to uh, go to Mexico uh, with the British Council, but they rejected my application. Then I wanted to go to Cuba, but um, Cuba and visa processing was very long-winded and convoluted. And I thought, I don't have time for this while I'm in Germany to run to the British Embassy in London, uh, sorry, Cuban Embassy in London. So I thought, you know what, let's try Argentina. It was a very random decision, yeah. And also because the visa was, you only get, you get the 90 day, uh, uh, you know, tourist visa. So I thought, you know what, I, I don't have the energy for the stresses around visa. Um, I want to go to Cuba because my friend went there for her year abroad. I thought, you know what, let's do Argentina. So I book my flight, I do everything and I land, land in Argentina in March of 2009. And I don't understand anything anyone is saying. So if either of you know Spanish and how Spanish works. Um, so Argentine Spanish is very much influenced by Italian. So when they speak, it's very Italian. Lots of hand gestures, you know. Um, and it's just the expressions are very different, of course, you know. Um, and the first month, actually, I avoided speaking Spanish wherever possible. Um, but obviously, once you start living in the country and you're forced to, you know, learn how to speak, you know, in the, in the supermarket, learn how to request um, meat cuttings in a particular way, you know, you, you're forced, you know, so that's when I started speaking. Uh, so now when I speak, I have a very specific accent from Buenos Aires, and people know uh, that it's immediately from Argentina. So yeah, so, so that's how I came into and uh, to uh, Argentina. And obviously, while I was in Argentina, the first thing I researched, like many Muslims when we when we travel, is where are all the halal spots? There sadly weren't um, uh, many. In fact, there were there were none. Um, or from when I was there, I don't remember there being any. Um, so I found I found a um, empanada place uh, in uh, the area of Onse, which is a predominantly uh, Orthodox Jewish area. Like so you could say, it's the Stamford Hill of of Buenos Aires. Um, so in Onse, I found actually a Lebanese guy who sold empanadas, which were halal. But, um, but beyond that, I didn't find anything else in Buenos Aires. Um, so then what I did, uh, I relied actually when I was out there on a lot of kosher meat. Uh, and, and, and I bought my kosher meat from Onse, from um, you know, the Orthodox Jewish community, because, um, yeah, I, I just, I just, yeah, I, 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 I felt like, you know, this was my HMC equivalent where it was approved. Um, <laughs> You didn't want to become vegetarian even for those moments. Oh, um, I could, I could, but um, I, I have severe iron deficiency, so I try to, you know, uh, 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 you know, um, add different things into my diet. But um, but also, I only ate meat like maybe overall about five or six times actually during my seven months in Argentina. So even then, you could say I was hardly consuming, or maybe I was practicing, you know, the actual sunnah of not eating too much meat. Um, uh, you know, depends on perspective here. But um, yeah, so, so I, and obviously I started attending the masjids there. Uh, so I would go to the King Fahad Mosque in uh, Palermo. Uh, I used to go there pretty much every Friday. Um, then at times I um, would go to um, 
Oh my God, uh, it's known as, when I was there, it was called the Egyptian mosque because the imam was Egyptian, but then I, the names just uh, escaped my mind. And then we used to go to Flores, which was a predominantly uh, what people refer to as the Shia masjid. And that's, uh, Flores was quite far from where I lived. It was about an hour and a half journey. Um, and that's where they had a halal uh, butchers as well. And um, uh, so um, I, I visited that once actually, but because of the distance, I didn't always go there. So, um, so yeah, so that's, I guess, to answer your question in the most long-winded way, is how I ended up in Argentina, meeting Muslims. And in the King Fahad Masjid, I became really good friends with a, with a Syrian woman. Um, and then she wanted someone to teach English to her children. She had very young, uh, under 10, uh, two children. She's like, you know, I want them to learn English. Um, so I started teaching them English. She was the Arabic teacher in the madrasa as part of the King Fahad Masjid. And her husband was the cook. For the masjid uh, so whenever I'd go he would make me like all these amazing Syrian dishes I don't even know the names uh, but he would just make them and feed me lots of baklava um, and, and I taught them English while I was out there um, so yeah and then and also I met um, I met I, I became really good friends with her my flatmate uh, Julia um, who is now um, actually uh, I think she's still based in Holland she was looking at uh, lots of stuff to do with religion identity for her master's dissertation so that's how we sort of started con uh, conversing but uh, you know but also I was you know praying Jumma and going to various things um, so yeah well that's really fascinating because I mean it's interesting to see the the journey you make in mm -hmm. terms of finding the finding the halals thoughts and things yeah. like that. I mean, there's a there was actually a Lebanese restaurant in Charkas and things like okay. that, which was halal. But it's it's a it's a very kind of um, it is a skill. It's a kind of detective mm. work to find yeah, them. Yeah. So maybe um, just wanted to, when you started doing this. So obviously, in a lot of these Muslim communities, there are two types of Muslims, mm. and I'm not talking about it in terms of um, the Muslims they belong mm. to or things like that. But in terms of those who have arrived recently, mm. relatively recently. And those who've been more well established, mm -hmm. did you find a similar kind of breakdown in yeah. in in, uh, in Port, uh, among Portuguese Muslims? So? Um, so I met Muslims primarily in Mendoza, okay. so which is in uh, further west of Argentina, very close to the Chilean border, and lots of uh, Muslims obviously across uh, Buenos Aires. But um, a lot of them were um, sort of fourth, fifth generation. So we're not talking newly arrived individuals. We're talking people whose great grandparents had come or grandparents at, at the very least. Um, and a lot of them uh, couldn't speak Arabic because the majority, majority came from the Levant. Uh, they came from what is today referred to as Syria, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, um, very few maybe from Jordan uh, and, and um, Egypt. So they came from the Ottoman. They came from the yeah yeah. For, uh, it's around the eighteen sixties yeah. uh, period um, that. Uh, so one of the academics actually who who sort of traces it is uh, called um, Cervantes Cervantos, uh, who does a lot of the tracing and um, and they're primarily actually uh, Christian uh, majority of Christian who arrive, um, and when they actually arrive in Argentina they uh, arrive with their Turkish passports. So irrespective of whether they're Muslim or not, they were all referred to as Turcos mm -hmm. um, because they came with Turkish passports. Um, so yeah, but also just going back to your food comment actually earlier, um, I, I was I, I refused to leave Argentina without obviously trying its famous steak. It's known for its meat and and you know, and um, maybe this is controversial to say, but I just felt like the way they look after their meat, that they're, they're they're sort of you know 
the, 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 it's, there's a whole culture around how your meat needs to be cleaned and I genuinely felt like it, it probably is halal and meets the halal requirements uh, but I still couldn't because of my psychological you know uh, inculcation in the UK of how halal and HMC you know so um, so I ended up having the very famous Argentine steak in a um, uh, in an Ashkenazi Jewish Orthodox uh, restaurant that I found in Onse and I just felt like okay well this is this is halal and you know I can consume it so that was the only time uh, I had the Argentine steak um, because I know some Muslims are okay with you know just saying bismillah and they're like it's ahl kitab and um, I, I, I just I just can't that's just not for me no 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 it's, uh, actually if you want to get steaks and if you want to uh, Muslims on say is the place because you know you can yeah, get yeah. lots of these steaks yeah. yeah so I guess some of the question and I'll turn with this really is a little bit more about you can mm-hmm. tell us about this the community mm-hmm. um, you mentioned that they many of them have um um, no longer speak Arabic or, mm. or kind of languages you do. I imagine they've all become Spanish speakers, etc. To what extent do you felt that they were uh, conscious of their Muslimness? Or to what extent do you think this was being reignited mm. in recent events? Mm. And would they identify, how would they identify with themselves? And how did they approach you? I mean, there's a three or four different questions all yeah. enrolled in one, but I thought... Might be... I think, you know, if we now want to bring in race into the conversation to understand how it operated, right? Because with Argentina, much like um, uh, Brazil uh, had very strong um, whiteization policies, um, so, uh, you know, to blanquear, you know, to whiten uh, the nation. Um, and um, they... I guess they, you could say some of the early Argentine legislators were a bit confused with where to place these so-called Turcos because they're not exactly the Nordic people they were hoping they would be uh, because that was the group of people they wanted to fill up Argentina with. Um, but when they were arriving, they were very confused. You know, are they white or are they not? Um, but in that sense, you could say some of them were able to assimilate into whiteness because they were able to merge into the other Mediterranean communities who were arriving, particularly the Italians. Um, who are arriving also in large numbers. Um, and funnily enough, you know, um, leading up to World War II and post-World War II, you know, a lot of uh, Germans were arriving in Argentina uh, as well as Chile. So I think um, for a lot of the Arabs in Argentina, they were able to assimilate because of because they did uh, meet, you, you could say, the majority population's um, phenotype if I can put it uh, that way um, and you know uh, they weren't also dark-skinned they they're not people who necessarily stand out so to say um, so they, they I would say they merged in quite easily quite quickly um, so in Mendoza I remember when I was there like one of the Maronite churches was massive uh, because there's such a big Lebanese Maronite community uh, when I went to Mendoza um, but also um, a lot of the younger uh, sort of uh, Arab men and women I would meet in, in the masjid, they, um, a lot of them didn't speak Arabic, but they were utilizing the facilities and resources in King Fahad Masjid to try and sort of relearn Arabic, really basics. We're talking, you know, learning how to say, you know, learn, learning the alphabet and then learning the basics uh, because a lot of their, um, a lot of their parents and grandparents um, you know, they came and sometimes it would be a grandparent. So it's not necessarily grandparents who came um, and that grandparent will have married a local Italian woman or Croatian or whatever other European that arrived in Argentina. So it was lost in the process of also the identities made up within their own families. 
Um, so I think, yeah, it was, it was a variety of things, but a lot of the one, young people that I met, uh, I mean, the Syrian family, they were pretty much, um, you could say, new migrant family. So the parents actively spoke Arabic at home and the kids spoke Arabic and, and Spanish. And obviously I was teaching them English, whereas the more established families, they were trying to um, reconnect with their roots of learning Arabic and just learning how to make dishes uh, so Friday Jumma always became quite special because um, you know because after Jumma they used to serve uh, uh, quite a few tables of food and everyone would sit and meet and greet people and that's how I met some Senegalese Muslims who were there as well I met a group of Bengali uncles who were <laughs> there in this masjid um, and uh, and through that um, I realized one of the Bengali uncles worked in Onse because one of the areas of Onse is predominantly uh, all the fabric shops. Uh, so he was, uh, a, um, I guess you could say, a machinist uh, in his shop. So I met some very eclectic mix of Muslims uh, in, in King Fahad Masjid, where I spent most of my time. Um, also the diplomatic corps, I mean, on Jummah, they'll come up with their limousines and things like that. Yeah, the oh my are. God, yes, I have met people, uh, wives of diplomats. Um, <laughs> And I've just always been like, wow, you know, I mean, when you're from Luton and you <laughs> enter a masjid in King Fahad and you're like, oh my God, I'm standing like pregnant with dignitaries, you know. Um, so it was a bit of a wild experience of sort of, you know, being, you know, taken out of Luton and you're in Buenos Aires. Um, but um, but it just, was just, just as a side point, we have nothing against Luton here at CMS. <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, it was an incredible space, sort of catering very much to, to its local community, but also then, um, you know, and what's really interesting as well, I was, um, I cite this in my paper actually, where I look at Islam in Argentina, where at some point, you know, uh, uh, there was relations with Gaddafi as well. Uh, so, so it's just so um, interesting observing how transnationalism plays out in a completely different setting we're so very, you know, unfamiliar with. Yeah. So, uh, Fatima, you mentioned that the, lots of Muslims arrived from the Levant in the 1860s mm. and mid-19th century. Um, it, it, are those the kind of early signs of Islam that we get in Argentina? Mm. Is there anything that precedes that? Mm. Uh, I won't be able to actually answer that question sure. because I don't know. Okay. Um, sure. But um, what I can say is there were various um, establishments that did pop up. So um, there were Sufi organisations. Um, again, I, I cite a lot of them in, in my paper, actually. Then you obviously have the mushtids who are available now. Um, and then, um, but I think, I think one of the things, uh, I think that the, the moment, I would say, in sort of Argentine history where for your average Juan and like Melissa of Buenos Aires or Argentina in general, they became exposed to Islam um, you know, when um, uh, uh, Menem came into power. Um, and, and Menem was a Christian. He was a Syrian Sunni, uh, sorry, Muslim, not, not Christian. Um, he was a, a Sunni Syrian Muslim. And Do you want to sort of just say who Menem was? for Because uh, sure, it was sure. many, many years. Cultura Menester yes. Yeah. yes, so he was the... Um, um, oh my God, I've forgotten. Is it Prime Minister, President? President. president. Yeah, president he was a president of, of um, Argentina in the early 90s. Um, and um, he uh, uh, came in and uh, he wasn't uh, particularly popular uh, uh, following his sort of um, stay in office. But, um, but he definitely changed the sort of 
cultural landscape and religious uh, also because um, prior to his uh, uh, presidential sort of um, uh, reign, um, uh, in the Argentine constitution, you had to be a Catholic to be the head of state. And it was uh, Carlos Menem, actually, who, who changed this and said, actually, you just, you just have to be a citizen of Argentina and you don't have to be uh, a Catholic or, or Muslim or whatever. Um, so that was quite significant. Was he um, open about his Muslimness or was he basically, um, it was sort of a crypto-Muslim yeah. kind of thing there? Um, it was a bit of, yeah, it was definitely crypto, I think, in a way, because he was very conscious of the fact that, uh, you know, um, because he, 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 he had to convert to become the president because you can't be president unless you're Catholic um, and I think a lot of the times uh, there was still a lingering sort of suspicion of is he really is he not and whenever he was like people would take interview him he would always have a Quran and a Bible and trying to make the point you know I, I love all religions so I think because he was so ambiguous that made people not actually trust him um, so much but um, but you know he changed that element of the constitution um, and um, and, and uh, no, I was just going to say for clarification. Um, so he was he came from a kind of Sunni Muslim background, yeah. and then he converted to Catholicism on, yeah. upon becoming the president. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, that I think you mentioned the paper, um, the funeral. And yes, his son's, his son's funeral. His son's yeah. funeral, yeah. and and maybe you could tell um, mm. um, our listeners a little sure. bit about the spectacle of the funeral mm. and what it says about Muslimness. For yeah. that time, sure. Yeah. So his son um, died in a helicopter crash, and um, and and I think that's when you know uh, Islam was really visibly on people's television because this was televised live to the nation. This this funeral or janaza, it was a janaza. It wasn't you know a Christian uh, funeral. Uh, when his son passed away, um, you know they, they they put together a, a janaza and, and 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 you know passages from the Quran were read out. Um, you know, in Arabic, you know, and then of course then in Spanish. So I think that was the first time you could say the Argentine public heard a quote-unquote foreign language and, and foreign ways, quotation marks here, um, um, of, of uh, doing uh, this uh, very different way of burying someone. So I think that was the first time that Argentines were tuning in and thinking, oh my God, like, this is so very different and unique and um, and, and, and I don't think people were particularly, um, uh, I, I don't want to use the term saying, you know, uh, people were necessarily Islamophobic or anything. It was more just a general curiosity about something so different that's on their screen and trying to figure out, okay, well, we thought Carlos was one of us. And again, if we rely on the one of us through just the phenotyping uh, sort of processes of racialization, then of course he, he looks like, you know, any other Argentine that you ever meet when you're walking around Buenos Aires or any other city in Argentina, because Argentina was one of those few countries that pretty much um, annihilated most of its, you know, native uh, communities. So, so in that sense, when people saw Carlos and their Menem on their screen, it wasn't anything unusual or different to critique him, you know. So the religion became that one one thing, which he obviously buffered constantly with his love for all religions. But I think this is the moment where people were suddenly faced with the fact that, oh my, he really is, has some sort of affinity still to Islam and being Muslim. Um, and yeah, I do, I do go into detail about the janazah and how um, the sort of spectacle of it all and how people respond and so on and so forth. Yeah, I was just going to follow up on that because um, one of the things um, about Argentina mm -hmm. has been that it's kind of 
hegemonic construction of itself as European mm -hmm. and as being uh, kind of the child of the Enlightenment and, you know, very, very strongly in that way. So much of that kind of um, literature of Europeanness and that kind of thing inherits this kind of, mm -hmm. at least a kind of Orientalist construction of the other and mm -hmm. Europeanness there. Did you find any evidence of that in relation mm -hmm. to how these Turcos were actually perceived mm -hmm. or was this just completely bracketed away mm -hmm. from that or were they seen as part of that lineage or... Is that something that came across in your um, engagement with mm. them and their own experiences yeah. in this sort of... Yeah, um, no, I definitely did. Um, and I actually talk about it in the paper where there's the the, the, the cowboy culture, the, um, gauchos. the gauchos, and how the gauchos are compared to the Bedouins and how they wear trousers like them, they look like them, they're, you know, uh, a bit sort of uh, almost peasant-like. Um, so there, there were definitely those historical uh, comparisons there and the sort of, again, the sort of very Orientalist constructions of the Muslim and, and particularly the Arab here. Um, so that was definitely there. But I feel like in the, in the context of Argentina um, and the way whiteness operates, because what is interesting about a lot of the Argentines, even that I came across, who would always tell me Buenos Aires is the Paris of Latin America, you know, they would take a lot of pride. And obviously we know that there are a lot of racial undertones there of what is being implied. And... Um, and it's really funny because a lot of them, I would tell them, actually, if you came to Britain, you would not be necessarily seen as white because people will see you as Italian, you know, or Spanish. And they have a different positioning in the hierarchy of whiteness, you know. So, so um, but a lot of them wouldn't take too well to that discussion because they would feel strongly about the fact that, no, but we're white. We're not like. And it was always against, uh, juxtaposed with the Bolivians or the Peruvians who are more... Um, sort of, there's a bigger indigenous community there. So they always felt like we, we're not them. We are more, you know, attached to uh, the European continent. Uh, and we see that play out with regards to citizenship. So a lot of Italians and those with Spanish origin um, can apply for citizenship um, in Spain and Italy if they can prove um, that their grandparents or great-grandparents came from those countries. Um, so you see that through football. You know, so a lot of Argentine uh, individuals, men, uh, who don't make it into Argentinian football clubs or the National Football Club, if they can get uh, uh, Italian citizenship, they end up playing for, uh, you know, Italian football teams. Um, you know, um, so I think, I think this, um, again, going back to the previous point about how a lot of the Arabs were able to assimilate in a way that I don't think, for example, the small Senegalese community will never be able to, right? Um, or even, um, I mean, this is a separate country, but I, I met a lot of uh, Malaysians and Indonesians in Cuba, for example, like they could never assimilate into Cubanness and Muslimness in the way, that, in that instance, Senegalese Muslims could, right? So I think, you know, if we consider the sort of racial makeup of those countries and how that plays out, um, I feel that in the Argentine case for Arabs, it was slightly easier in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's because they have been merged into whiteness in a way that um, that you see in North America as well, you know, um, in, in their census, Arabs uh, are seen as white. And obviously, I know that post 9-11, they've been fighting to include Arab as a, as a choice. Um, and it's no different, I would say, in Latin America. I mean, um, 
uh, I'm trying, uh, is it Ecuador, I think, has had a uh, Syrian, I think it was Syrian or Lebanese, I can't remember now, uh, prime, uh, president. Um, some of the wealthiest people in these countries are actually of Arab origin. When we look at um, the, the, the candidate who ran against Bolsonaro was Fernando Haddad, who is of Lebanese origin. Then when you look at Chile, you have, um, you know, the Palestinian community, uh, majority, again, Christian in Santiago, but they uh, hail from a part of uh, Bethlehem. So again, when we look at the makeup of the way these countries consume whiteness, you know, Arabs have been able to comfortably merge in with that. Um, so that's why when we talk about Islamophobia in those contexts, it is specifically when you're a visible Muslim. There is no such thing as racialization in the sense in how it would work in Britain, where a Sikh who is not a visible Sikh could be assumed to be Muslim because it's the South Asian body that is presumed to be Muslim. So yeah, so I think in the, in the Latin American context, uh, Arabs have been quite comfortable in that sense. And that's where socioeconomically as well, uh, they've also done very well. Um, so yeah, so I, yeah, I, don't, I hope I've been able to address some of those points. Sure, yeah, no, yeah. thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to ask, <clears throat> refer back to a conversation we had earlier about, was it Bruno? Yeah. Right, okay, we do talk about Bruno here. Yeah. And uh, Bruno's grandmother, was it? Or yeah, mother? Yeah, yeah, grandmother. Yeah. So maybe you yeah, want to yeah. just say a little sure, bit about sure. that story, yeah? So obviously while I was living out there, I just, um, I was meeting some incredible people and I became friends with this Peruvian guy called Bruno and, um, and he would obviously, he you know, hear me sort of making wudu and getting ready to pray and going to the masjid. And one day he just sort of said to me, you know, um, my grandmother's name is Amina, you know, and, and is that, is that something to do with Islam or, you know, like, what does this name mean? And I looked at, and obviously I was confused because Bruno is um, a mix of sort of Italian and lots of other European heritages. But um, so he just said to me, um, you know, my grandmother is, uh, her name's Amina and she came and she married my granddad and then so on and so forth. And then um, he asked me, so what does this name mean? And, and, and I said, okay, well, is your grandmother Muslim? I said, well, yeah, but she doesn't talk about it. Um, and my granddad's Catholic, and um, but um, but I'm just, I'm, I just want to know where it comes from. So I actually took him to the masjid with me in Tukum Fahad Masjid in in um, Palermo, and and he was just amazed by the fact that this is a part of his own history and identity he had never known because his grandmother never speaks about it. Um, and I never actually asked him why why she never did. I guess I was just so in awe of the fact that you know this man could potentially be interested in becoming Muslim, who knows? Um, so, so yeah, actually, once once you publish this podcast, I will send it to Bruno and be like, listen, I, 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 I mentioned your, your grandma. But um, no, and just lots of other examples of people telling me how they have Arab heritage, um, but those Arab um, relatives, they never met, so they don't even know much about them, um, even if they were Muslim. So I think, you know, this sort of presence of very mixed families was quite common as well. Um, usually because it was men who arrived first, so they tended to marry, again, uh, local uh, Italian women or Spanish women who were already in Argentina. So, so yeah. Well, this is really interesting because throughout this um, conversation, you've talked about the ability to pass mm. and, um, and, and also that ability allowing a certain kind of upward mobility mm. or reconstruction of the Argentinian yeah. Muslim or Arab population to be in a very, very kind of um, significantly influential or uh, important positions compared to, let's say, the history of um, Muslims in Brazil, which is mm -hmm. often to do with the, um, in, uh, many of them were enslaved mm -hmm. Africans coming in there and being mm -hmm. part of the kind of rebellions yeah. and things like that. So that's a kind of different kind of history. 
So I just want to talk about the one of the things you mentioned a little bit, and also in the paper, is this this relationship between the Maronite Christians mm. who are have a narrative to some extent of leaving the persecution of the 1860s mid centuries and being able to sort of uh, be accommodated and in the backswell of that. Mm. What were the relationships between the Maronites and the Muslim community? Was that just something mm. completely not really remarkable or were there mm. certain kinds of tensions mm. between that? And I guess the other question is this, we're talking about a sort of idyllic time to some mm. extent and whether, for example, the... Um, attack on the um um I mean, uh, the uh, the center in the Jewish center, Jewish center yeah. there yeah. and whether that led to sort of uh, greater concerns mm. and being wrapped up into the kind of securitization mm. of uh, muslimness yeah. globally and how that may have had kind of consequences mm. i know that goes beyond the bit of the paper there but i just thought you might want to reflect yeah. on some of those things so in the 90s when those attacks happened um on the jewish center and the um i, th- I believe there was a synagogue as well uh, that was attacked at the same time but um i think that was that was constructed as um iranian involvement um, in fact, it was just five, six years ago that that was still reappearing in a court case. Um, so uh, I, it was never constructed as it being the Arabs uh, or the Turcos, so the locals. It's the Iranian uh, people and it's the Iranian regime. So, it, I mean, that's the, that's the sort of reading I took from the way it was covered. And, um, so it's part yeah. of the kind of... Um conflict between Hezbollah and Israel yeah. around Lebanon and retaliation yeah. for what was happening in Lebanon, mm. vice versa, and things like that. Well, that's sort of how it's yeah. sometimes, how it's yeah. framed primarily. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm not sure it was necessarily a uh, conversation that revolved around, okay, it's, it's the local people around us we need to be wary of, um, whereas it was framed as a um, done by outsiders who came and did it. So it wasn't any of the sort of post-77 in Britain where it was, those born within our borders did this, you know, born and raised in Britain. Uh, that, that wasn't what was happening at all in the Argentine case. No, uh, exactly. yeah, yeah. Exactly. But also the whole question around the Christians and Muslims, I think a lot of them, and also the Jewish community, were also from the, from the Levant. So a lot of them um, retained and um, had fairly decent relations from, again, the people that I met. Because for them, they were just trying to hold on to their... You know, uh, you know, people have a particular nostalgia, right, about their heritage, about language and music. So they actually saw this as a way of retaining that link. So I don't think people paid much attention to, well, you're Maronite, you're, you know, Syrian Orthodox. You know, it was more a case of, OK, th- this is our only way to retain Arabic. This is our only way to retain um, some of the food we eat. So I think it was more around trying to preserve uh, you know, the preservation of heritage became more of a priority, I would say. Uh, and also, interestingly, so the Syrian family I was teaching, the children I was teaching English to, the mother wears a, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, at the time, uh, she was always in a hijab and jilbab every day in her outings, everything. And she told me how people just assume she's a nun. <laughs> people just assume she's a nun, uh, even though she was <coughs> multicolored and not not the sort of white and black that you know yeah. you see nuns wearing. But yeah, she, people would you know do the cross when she'd get on the bus. Um, so it was really interesting how how she was perceived in the general public uh, when she was out and about. And interestingly, whenever she missed anything specifically from Syria, a particular biscuit or anything, in Onsir, in some of the businesses, they were Jewish, they were Syrian Jews. So she would go to those businesses to buy her biscuits that she misses because, you know, they haven't had it in a while or whatever. So, um, so there was that connection that was retained even then of food is what brings us together and, you know, um, 
and remembering and preserving our 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 heritage. Um, so yeah, so she did it through through uh, engaging with the with the Syrian Jewish community. But what's really interesting about the Syrian Jewish community is when a lot of the European Ashkenazi Jews started arriving in, in Buenos Aires and wider Argentina, a lot of the Jewish communities who were primarily, you know, uh, Sephardic and um, uh, Mizrahi felt the pressure to, um, I guess you could say, Ashkenazize their identities. So Yiddish became the language they had to suddenly pick up because Yiddish became the language that, uh, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews who arrived were speaking. Um, and, um, and so many of them lost, you could say, uh, parts of their heritage because the influence of Ashkenazism was so strong culturally um, that people who were Syrian Jews, for example, would not speak Arabic anymore, but now speak Yiddish and you know, interact with the Ashkenazi Jewish community. So in a way, there has been a bit of a loss, you could say. Um, but also, you know, people find other people from their communities, you know, the, the Syrian Jews have found some of the Syrian Muslims, and that's how they retain that relationship to their, to a homeland that they only, you know, have nostalgia for. So, um, I guess this has really um, been really fascinating in a way, and I think the final question, and really for us, is that... Um, in terms of the themes of the forgotten or more kind of thing, how conscious did you think there were in relation to changes and shifts in Muslimness in other mm -hmm. parts of the world? And how did you see um, those kinds of questions and this were there, for example, you've talked repeatedly about the Arabness and trying to recover mm -hmm. Arabic, etc. Did you see any kind of similar kind of process around um, rearticulation or reassertion of Muslimness as a global identity, connections and things like that, or was it because Argentina is so far away from the rest of the world mm. that it's just almost a planet or its own yeah. and it just sort of observes from that? Did you get any sense of that connectiveness mm. or connectivity? or Definitely to their homelands. That's how they connected their Muslimness and construction. So a lot of, uh, you know, I attended. So when I got there in 2009, that was just after the, uh, you know, um, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. Um, so there were a lot of demos, a lot of demos outside the Israeli embassy. There were a lot of demos outside, um, uh, um, uh, oh, I can't remember one of the buildings we were outside. But um, so a lot of... Um, I would say um, the sort of uh, mobilizing is more around sort of Palestine um, and their homeland. So if they're Lebanese, it would be something to do with what's happening in Lebanon. Um, and, and Syria, obviously, uh, uh, you know, at the time, it was still the case that, you know, people were, you know, focusing on what was happening. But this was 2009, long before, you know, um, uh, the Syrian uh, revolution kicked off. So, um, so I would say it was more about their homeland and homeland politics um, so I'm not entirely sure it would be seen as, or we can even project the idea of it being wanting to connect to some sort of uh, Islamic world. I, I wouldn't say that was the case at all. It was just, you know, what's happening back home, you know, mm -hmm. politics are back home. But, um, but I think what was really interesting in Argentina, actually, when uh, Christina Kirchner became president, um, although it was, it was never banned for uh, Muslim women to have hijabs on their ID cards, um, she uh, passed a law where you couldn't discriminate Muslim women if they did. Um, so, so she came out and she was very supportive of um, of uh, of that uh, of uh, Muslim women. Um, so that was very odd in a way because there wasn't a demand or there wasn't a push or anything. She just you know made sure that you know uh, Muslim women were protected. Um, but just something completely unrelated to uh, Islam in Argentina, or maybe it is related to it. But um, when I was heading to uh, um, 
one of my English lessons, I got lost. So I got out of the tube station and, uh, and I'm walking around. And, uh, and this is long before we had these smartphones, okay? 2009 is me just carrying a tiny little camera in whatever pocket I had. And I'm stuck in this park. I'm trying to figure out how to get there. And in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, they give you the guiate, which is the famous guiate booklet where you have to figure out where you are and figure out the little boxes and axes and whatever. So I'm obviously just flipping through, trying to figure out where I am. I turn around and I see this huge sign that says, um, Marilu, uh, don't... Uh, wait, what did it say? Um, Marilu, don't, don't go off with the Bengali seaman. Uh, or don't, don't, yeah, something, something along those lines. And obviously, I'm so confused because I'm lost. I'm running late for my English lesson. He's <laughs> Bengali semen. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm obviously looking at this and obviously I just grab my camera, take a picture and I, and I shoot off to my English lesson. And then on the side, I used to teach business English uh, in, a, in an English institute in uh, uh, the city centre. And... Um, and I actually had some really interesting conversations because my boss uh, was a Jewish lady who was... Uh, we had lots of interesting conversations, actually, now that I've remembered her. But I'll come back to that. So well, my student at the business English school, um, I just showed her the photograph and, uh, and I got her to, you know, practice, uh, you know, her English with me. And I was like, listen, I took this photograph. Explain to me in the vocab that we picked up on everything. What is this? And, um, and she said to me, oh, it's... Um, this famous uh, rock band uh, called uh, Los Abuelos de la Nada, so the parents of nobody or nobody's grandparents. Um, oh yeah, nobody's grandparents. And they had this famous song uh, uh, sort of pleading with Marilu not to fall in love and go off with this Bengali seaman. And that's the reference, that's the cultural reference that Marilu should avoid <laughs> this Bengali seaman. And I remember thinking like, where on earth did, you know, Los Abuelos de la Nada get this reference of the Bengali seaman? And then I just thought, okay, that's, that's you know, just, you know... You might want to translate that. I mean, I think I could, this is really kind of interesting because you get this kind of confluence. I mean, Borges' literature has always been an example of that. Yeah. You get this confluence of all these different kind of stories. And I think it's just weird that you're suddenly a Bengali sailor. Yeah, and suddenly it's, it's, exactly. it doesn't appear there. So. Yeah, so I don't, I don't even know if there was a, if there were Bengali seamen who went to Argentina. So I, I, don't, I, I don't know. But... Um, but actually, there were some rumours that uh, at some point, Robin Donatagor uh, may have uh, had Victoria Ocampo as his lover, who is an Argentine poet, uh, you know, so, so, but I don't know how true they are, but I've heard these rumours in sort of wide sort of Bengali literature. But yeah, that was just random, not to do with... No, I think that's, a, I thought it was just that's a fantastic place to finish. <laughs> you know, I like the idea of this dashing Bengali sailor, you know, sailing to Argentina and just stealing everyone, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's very good. Uh, thank you so much. Um, Fatima, this paper that you, you want to tell us a little bit about the paper and what sure. you're doing on there, so um, where sure. we could read it and um, after stuff. Sure. Um, so it's a paper I wrote uh, for my master's uh, dissertation looking at Islam in Argentina, deconstructing the biases. Uh, it's been published in the Journal of Muslim Minority Affairs. Um, I do intend to do more research on Islam in um, Latin America. Uh, where, I don't know yet, uh, any of the Spanish-speaking countries, preferably, because I don't speak uh, Portuguese. Um, and hopefully those of you listening, maybe, you know, you could do take part and do your own research uh, on one of these countries. So, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you very much for watching that. Thank you. Thank you.
This is an episode of Forgotten Ummah, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.